Good afternoon and welcome to today's panel presented by the Law School Center for National Security Law entitled Cyber Operations, Is It Possible to Apply 20th Century International Law to 21st Century Cyber Capabilities? And I like that we have a sort of provisional answer in parentheses, the devil is in the details. Uh, it is so wonderful to see you all today, uh, all, here all today, uh, because there's no question that this is a really important issue and that cyber operations, particularly those conducted uh, by states or by agents acting on behalf of states, represent one of the most important national security issues currently facing both the United States and the rest of the world. The international legal issues associated with the conduct of cyber operations are often novel and nuanced, hence we have 20th century legal concepts to deal with a 21st century problem. Uh, and this is particularly true of the attempt to identify those cyber operations that we might uh, uh, call a cyber attack in the context of both those international law principles that apply to a state's right to use force and the law of armed conflict applicable to such a use of force. In this larger context, and obviously in light of uh, all that's going on in the world, today's panel will assume the task of addressing a number of the more contentious questions to which the weaponizing of cyber gives rise. First, what types of cyber activities constitute a cyber attack or the equivalent of an armed attack? That is, what cyber activities trigger the right of a state to use force in a legitimate exercise of self-defense in response to a cyber attack, a use of force to which the law of armed conflict would then apply. Second, is it realistically possible to apply currently existing law of armed conflict principles to cyber operations? Third, how might a state in compliance with the law of armed conflict calibrate a legitimate act of self-defense against what has been deemed a cyber attack, right? So what's the proportionality between the attack and the response? How would, how would one uh, calibrate that? And fourth, the vast number of cyber operations conducted against a state don't rise to the level of a cyber attack. You might call them cyber intrusions instead. Uh, and so they do, even though they don't rise to the level of a cyber attack, they do still uh, intrude upon the sovereignty of the state concerned. So how would a state legitimately respond to such intrusions that fall short of being a cyber attack under current international law? So as I indicated earlier, answers to these questions are not going to come easily. And quite often, as the title suggests, and as I'm sure uh, our august and accomplished panel will start to tell us, the devil really is in the details. This topic is in the news. It is crucial to our national security. Uh, I am so pleased that we have such an august panel here to discuss it with you all today and that you all are here giving it the attention that it deserves. So thank you and enjoy the panel. Thank you, Dave. Well, thank you, Dean Gullaboff. And let me add my welcome. We truly appreciate the fact that you've chosen to attend the panel. Last week at the NATO headquarters in Brussels, the NATO defense ministers proclaimed <clears throat> that cyber weapons would now have as big a role in NATO planning as guns and tanks, and thus they decided to establish a new cyber operations center at NATO. To quote the defense ministers, we can now strengthen NATO missions and operations with cyber capabilities, as we know that cyber will be an important part of any potential military conflict. So as the Dean indicated, I don't think there's any doubt that 
cyber operations are really now the national security issue of our age. <clears throat> I'm Dave Graham. I'm with the Center for National Security Law here at the law school. And it's my distinct privilege to moderate this afternoon's panel, the title of which is Cyber Operations, Is It Possible to Apply 20th Century International Law to 21st Century Cyber Capabilities? As the Dean indicated, the devil really is in the, the details. We're very pleased to have with us this afternoon four exceptionally qualified panelists with both practical and academic experience in the cyber domain. I am not going to detail their extensive credentials uh, in the interest of time. I'm simply going to introduce these panelists to you. <coughs> Excuse me. First, we have Colonel Gary Korn, United States Army. Gary is the staff judge advocate, that is the senior military legal advisor to the United States Cyber Command. We also have Colonel Retired Gary Brown, United States Air Force, who is the former SJA at the U.S. Cyber Command. We next have Major General Retired Charlie Dunlap, formerly the Deputy Judge Advocate General of the Air Force and currently the Executive Director of the Center on Law, Ethics, and National Security at Duke University Law School. And, and legend in my own mind, I might add. But in few others, I would add. <laughs> And then finally, we have Captain Todd Hundley, United States Navy. Todd is currently with the faculty, the International Operational Law Department at the Army's Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, our neighboring institution right across the street. The format for the panel, I'm going to pose questions to the panelists uh, on a wide array of international legal issues associated with cyber operations. They're going to respond to those questions, and I think in the context of their responses, they'll probably have a discussion amongst themselves, but I can assure you that we're going to leave ample time at the end of this session for Q&A, because I know you'll have some. I'll also alert you to the fact, <clears throat> I'll alert you to the fact that we're going to be posing questions that deal with both use ad bellum, that is use of force issues associated with cyber operations, as well as use in ballot law of armed conflict issues associated with cyber activities. Okay? So with that as background, let's move to the first question that I would pose. And that question really is a use ad bellum substantive question that I think really provides the foundational question for any number of the legal issues we'll be discussing for the next hour and a half. The question is this. What types of activities actually constitute what can be regarded as a cyber attack? That is, an attack that's equivalent to an armed attack to which a state can then respond in a self-defense mode through a use of force to which the law of armed conflict would then apply. And in posing this question, I would remind the panelists that the DOD Law of War Manual of 2015 provides examples of cyber operations that it states do not constitute cyber attacks. In this regard, the manual notes that factors suggesting that a cyber operation is not an attack include whether the operation causes only reversible or temporary effects. It then goes on to list cyber operations that, in its language, generally would not be viewed as cyber attacks. And I'll give you an example of these. Defacing a government web page, a minor brief disruption of internet services, 
briefly disrupting, disabling, or interfering with communications, and very interesting, as an interesting side note to what's going on in today's world, disseminating propaganda. So, with that as background, I'll pose the question to the panelists. Your thoughts on the types of activities that constitute a cyber attack to which a state, if it chooses to do so, might respond through a use of force. Gary, you want to take the first crack at that? Yeah, sure. There's um, no doubt there's a, there's a challenge um, in applying the existing legal frameworks of the ad bellum to, to these new technologies and, and you know, how do they translate over. Um, you know, in general, the concepts are there, the basic principles exist. It's a matter of doing the hard work of applying the law to new facts, right? Um, I think, for me, importantly to start off, terminology matters in this space. And there's a lot of used terminology used, which adds to some of the confusion and uncertainty. Starting with, sorry, but the, the term cyber attack. That, that doesn't have a, a meaning. That's not a, a legal term of art. The term attack has a, a, it's a legally operative term in the use in vellum, and I know we'll talk about some of that. Um, in the use ad vellum, the question is whether something, any activity, constitutes a use of force under Article 2.4 of the UN Charter or an armed attack under Article 51, which is the triggering point for a state to exercise its inherent right of self-defense. Um, Generally, there's a basic agreement of you know it when you see it, when, when um, kinetic force would, would result in death or damage or to, to death or injury to individuals or, or destruction or damage to property, that would constitute a use of force. There is debate in the international community about whether there is a a difference, a qualitative difference between a use of force under Article 2.4 and an armed attack under Article 51, and for those who ascribe to the view that there is a force gap there, they would, they would look and say you have to have some level of harm that's more significant than just some injury or, or damage. Um, the United States' position on this for a long time has been that there, there is no real gap and that a use of force um, the United States reserves its right to exercise self-defense in the face of a use of force. So, yeah, there's a basic baseline kinetic um, standard that people look to, and you can start to draw analogies. If you're going to use cyber means to create an effect that is the functional equivalent of injuring someone, causing death, causing damage, causing destruction, put within a totality of the circumstances context to understand who's conducting that operation. Can you discern intent? Uh, is that done within the context of a broader political you know, challenge or problem? You take all those factors together and, and as the DOD Law of War Manual says, you know, those things that we would consider to be uses of force in the physical domain, if caused through cyber means, we would probably consider to be a use of force uh, in that circumstance as well. 
where it starts to get hard -er, is you now have a capability, a means by which you can sort of reach into the borders of other countries and create different types of effects. So take a denial of service attack, right? A, a, an operation where you are essentially flooding computer systems or networks and overloading them with traffic so that they are degraded in their, their functionality. If you were to do that, as the reporting is out there, Iran has done, for example, against our financial sector, if you do that at a sustained level uh, over time that, that really brings your uh, country's financial sector to its knees, you haven't used, you haven't caused that physical harm that we typically look to and see. You've caused a different type of effect, but certainly one that is threatening to the security and safety of that country. That, that's where I think you know, you'll start to see states maybe taking the old, uh, the existing law and, and having to adapt it in interpretation and application to this new space. Anybody, Charlie, yeah, just so that everybody really kind of understands what the issue here is, the U.S. position is that any use of force triggers self-defense. The rest of the world focuses on Article 51 of the U.N. Charter, which talks about armed attack. And does the word force and does the word armed attack mean the same thing? In the U.S. view, the answer is yes. In most of the rest of the world, there is this force gap. And I do think that the technology makes a difference. Uh, for example, historically, one of the things that would not be considered a use of force would, would be espionage. And, but now, because of the technology, you can take 20 million records of Americans and you can use big data to examine them and so and. and find out things and do things with that information that simply did not exist before. And I'll give you another example of something that would not be considered a use of force, propaganda, but imagine this. We have this, cap this capability could be extant today. <clears throat> imagine uh, that the adversary got the email addresses of every deployed soldier of their family possible? Of course it is. They have 20 million records of, of people. And they sent to somebody's mother the following email. We are going to kill your daughter tomorrow. She's in the U.S. Army. She's a lawful combatant. We're going to kill her. And you know what we're going to do? How we're going to do it? We, we have a micro drone which has facial recognition. We're going to seek her out and we're going to blow up this micro uh, drone in her face. Now, what we want you to do is to go out and protest the war and tell your government to stop the war. This is the ability to bring psych psychology to a whole new level. And with big data and the capabilities of cyber, it's not impossible. There's already uh, there's a book out by the Danish Defense Ministry, and it's on the web, by the way. It's called The Weaponization of Social Media. And it, it, it shows you how big data uh, facilitated with cyber can create new effects. Now, what we have to decide is, is this something we want to be considered a use of an armed attack? Is it the equivalent of blowing something up or killing somebody? 
even the denial of service attack, it generally speaking, that's not going to kill people, but maybe it might be, because if that des- denial of service attack hits a hospital at a certain time and nobody can get access to the system telling people when they're supposed to give drugs and so forth, I don't know, it's kind of a, a Paul's graph. Do they still teach Paul's graph? Or do they really? Hey, study that case. It's important to cyber, <laughs> believe it or not. Because what does it do? It tells you what's reasonably foreseeable. And I think with a lot of cyber activities, we have to start looking at that. Then the question is, how far out do you go and, and what's reasonable? So it really is the technology. I, I agree with Gary that I think that the Gary's, plural. Well, you don't um, know what I think yet. <laughs> that the that the standard principles can apply. It's just that the technology is going to um, make them apply in a different way. And we have to think through the implications of the technology and we have to decide or the, what norm we want to promote. And people say, well, we ought to make it very low so that everything we can respond to in self-defense. So I'm thinking, really? Because there may be things that we want to do to other countries that don't require killing their soldiers that can still achieve our objective. So it's, it's a two-way street here. Okay. Uh, you can tell I have four seasoned, I didn't say old, I said seasoned attorneys up here because we don't have a definitive answer yet to my question. <laughs> We've heard a lot about what doesn't constitute a cyber attack, but nobody has told me, I asked them, what... What examples can you give me of what you think of the cyber world actually constitutes an attack to which a state could use force to respond? I'm going to, Gary, would you, would you like to take that on, Gary Brown? Yeah, I, I'm not sure that's the most interesting uh, answer or, or set of comments in this question, but yeah, I think there is an answer to it. And the, the public case we have of, uh, of a cyber incident that, that would equate to, an, to uh, the kind of use of force that would, uh, that would entitle a state to use uh, force and self-defense is Stuxnet. Um, I think there's there's little doubt in the uh, in the international legal community that Stuxnet equated to at least to use force, maybe not an armed attack, but for the U.S. again, as we discussed, they're the same thing. So Stuxnet was uh, uh, an operation carried out by someone uh, or set of someone's against the Iranian uh, nuclear uh, uranium enrichment. Uh, program that resulted in the destruction of something like a thousand centrifuges. So when you think about an operation like that, this results in property destruction, uh, and the property was involved in a national sector that was a that was a stated priority, a national strategy priority of the Iranian government. So this is not some you know sideline thing. This is one of the main uh, lines of effort of the Iranian government. Clearly. Uh, that, that kind of an attack against the United States. The United States would consider that to be worthy of, of some kind of a res, uh, perhaps an armed response. Well, reportedly, the Iranians did respond. They didn't, they didn't respond with armed force. They responded uh, uh, in, the, in the cyber realm, perhaps because there's a difference in the, uh, the, the uh, overall strength of Iran in the United States, and they might have been concerned about the, uh, the counter response. But even that gets complicated because there's an argument out there that says that it's, it's, it's anticipatory yeah. self-defense, yeah. in which case uh, the use of force and self-defense would not be yeah. authorized. Yeah. I, I concur there's an argument. It's, it's, I don't think it's a good one. Though. It's a, <laughs> but yeah, there, depends. There, there is an argument out there. But 
So one of the challenges we have in, with international law is international law is made by states, not by academics. And states have been remarkably silent in this area, probably, we think, maybe, because they want to preserve their own national prerogatives. But it's difficult to both set norms and standards that you want other nations to, to follow, other states to follow, while also preserving uh, entire, uh, complete freedom of action on your own part at the same time. So this makes for a challenge. And I think you can see some of that reflected in the DOD Law of War Manual, which, which frankly doesn't do a good job at all at providing any kind of parameters for uh, cyber operations folks in DOD or for anybody else if, if we're trying to reflect US national, uh, the U.S. national position on things. Because, for example, and, and Dave quoted uh, some of this, things like the, the DOD Law of War Manual says, uh, um, brief disruptions of internet services, for example, would not equate to uh, uh, to a cyber attack. Well, yeah, uh, did anybody think they would? And they add minor, minor brief disruptions. Uh, defacing a web page, of course, is not going to be an attack. On the, on the other hand, for examples of things that would be an attack, it lists things like uh, hacking into a nuclear plant and triggering a meltdown, opening a dam above a populated area. I mean, well, of course, those are clearly... Uh, attacks. The problem is the, the stuff in the middle. We have the DOD manual tells us that, you know, essentially an angry email is, an, is not an attack that would trigger the right of self-defense and, you know, causing a nuclear meltdown is, you know, but there's, there's a pretty big delta between those two. And what, what we're interested in is the stuff in between, and we don't have any guidance to speak of. So uh, an attack, state on, attack on Sony would not be... Well, clearly not. We, we, we stated that was an act of cyber vandalism. <laughs> well, it was our official statement. Well, well, I, I, there's, there's the, the frustration is understandable, but um, I'd be interested to see a list of the actions in the physical world that we say constitute a use of force. I mean, at the end of the day, that's a, it's, a, it's a highly political question that is informed by legal considerations. At the end of the day, it's a national command authority that's going to say a set of circumstances have reached a threshold of harm and threat to the, to the nation and represent a collective threat that we need to invoke, you know, invoke force in response. And I think it's also important to call out, a lot of times I see, the, I'm not suggesting here, but I, I see these discussions and there's sort of a, a thought process which is completely flawed that if it's a cyber use of force, a cyber armed attack, well then it's a cyber conflict and there's gonna be a cyber response and it's going to be contained there. That's not the case. That's not the case. So when you deem something to be a use of force and you're going to invoke your right of self-defense, you have crossed a serious Rubicon. And what you're essentially saying is, as significant as Sony was, and there are other international law tools available and responses that you could take to a Sony type event, but is that a moment where we're going to start dropping bombs and killing people? Well, but, but there's a distinction there, Gary. You can, and I agree with this, Gary, Gary, Gary Alpha and Gary Number One, sort of up top there. Uh, what Gary Alpha here says that you know they called it cyber vandalism. Well, simply if you call it an armed attack, it doesn't mean that you have to respond. That's when the political dimension. But the problem is when you call something like Sony, where computers actually were fried by the way, mm -hmm. and Lisa Monaca 
who used to be President Obama's counterterrorism, she, she talked about this at Aspen a year and a half ago. Uh, when you call that vandalism, then you're establishing a norm that eventually says, uh, it's not really all that serious, so go ahead and do it again, because that's what, that's what other countries can hear. So it's one thing to say we need to be very careful how we characterize things because words do matter. If we characterize it as minor, even a defacing of a web page, that may seem, not seem like a big deal, but the facts matter. If it's, if it's the president's Twitter account and it says we are declaring war on Russia, that's kind of serious. Or if it's, you know, so, and it, but I'm sympathetic. I think all of, all of us agree that sometimes decision makers want what I call a cookbook. Where they, where every possible scenario is vetted in advance. But guess what? The world doesn't look work that way, and you got to evaluate each event factually. That means decision makers have to make decisions because in this area, even in the physical world, as Gary talks about, in the Nicaragua case, they have this, and it's strictly physical. This had to do with uh, South America, Nicaragua, obviously, and the United States' culpability for alleged uses of forces. In, there's language in there that says, well, we, we don't count mere border incidents as uses of force. In other words, guys shooting each other, we don't, we don't, we don't really count that. So there is some measure of judgment that has to come on this, and this is what, what I think the world's struggling with, because it's one thing, for example, to mess with a with a voting machine how it counts votes and it's another thing to hack into emails and expose accurate information you know would we do that if we could if we could affect an adversary's election for example by hacking into their computer system and exposing accurate albeit embarrassing information would we do it I asked Representative Schiff who's you know, who, he's the hip seat guy. And, um, and he said, well, I can't discuss things in open environment, blah, blah, blah. And so we need to think that through. And is there a difference if a nation blankets the world with false information? And you can make some really good false information now with pictures. and You can make, make films that look super realistic. So, so Charlie, this points out a, uh, one of the differences between cyber operations and kinetic operations and explains why uh, we, don't, we don't actually need a list of things in the kinetic world that, that equate to uh, attacks because international law is made by state custom and practice. The problem in, with cyber operations is states aren't saying what they're doing. Things are happening. They're attributed to states, but states aren't owning up to, like Russia isn't really coming out and saying, we tried to manipulate an election or, or we engaged in significant problems. No, we problems. said they did. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's one thing if they put up their hands and say, uh, yeah, we did this and here's why we did it. And then we can start developing start developing custom and practice. But in this case, yeah, we're, we're uh, dis- discounting the possibility that we engaged in this kind of behavior. Charlie, so before you respond to that, Todd, you, you want to chime in on this? Yeah, I... There's nothing that my colleagues haven't said that I disagree with. I think it's, it's illustrative of just the difficulty in getting our heads wrapped around the, the changes that cyber and technology have made to our society, our national interest, and our national security interest, right? So 
I agree, you know, General Dunlap, you know, most people would say a physical destruction of a computer could rise to the level, would likely rise to the level of the use of force at least, right? Um, but does that really adversely affect our national security interests? Is that really a threat? I would say that, you know, cyber has fundamentally, fundamentally changed our society, right? It's fundamentally changed our world, how we live, and it's fundamentally changed what our national security interests are. And so until we can kind of come to grips with that and, and try to determine what are our national security interests today in light of the new technology, um, we're not going to be able to have any kind of clear list of this would be a cyber attack, this would not be a cyber attack, or rise to the level of a use of force or armed attack. I would say just like probably you know, go back to you know, the 1840s and 1850s, if somebody could develop a way to try to you know, destroy our access to whale oil, we may decide that that was a threat to our national security. You know, today, it's you know, threatening our access to, to oil and natural gas. Um, cyber has changed what is fundamentally vital to our national security interest. So cyber operations are easier to deny on the part of the state that conducts the cyber operations, and to a great extent, either for political or strategic reasons, cyber operations are easier to brush aside or simply ignore on the part of the state who's the recipient, who is the victim of the cyber operation. So we're in a netherworld there. Well, and in other words, if, if Sony had not been a cyber attack, but if we could have linked the North Koreans to a bomb placed in Sony that did the same thing kinetically, would the result have been different? I, I, I think it would have. I, I think people, if somebody, hit, if North Koreans were shown to put a bomb in continental United States and it blew up and did damage. Even though the damage to the system themselves <clears throat> would have been identical in nature. That's, that's why what Gary, number one, said is, you know, there is a political dimension to this in decision making. And what Gary Alpha here has said is also true. We're having trouble developing international norms. Why? I, I'll tell you, it's not hard. There's, I think, 123 countries in the world that are developing cyber warfare capabilities. I went to one unnamed country, and they said, General, you've got to come see our cyber warfare center. And walked in there, there were six guys with computers. And I'm thinking, something really triggered. Every country, no matter, if you're Liechtenstein, you think you can take down the big guys because you've got a computer like they do. And you have smart people. And so nobody wants, especially a lot of the other countries, this is their one chance to play with the big boys in the sense of this may be a, a capability that they can realistically acquire and develop that will provide them with a defensive uh, opportunity that they will never have in the kinetic world. Ergo, they're very leery of agreeing to things that might hurt them in the one area that they think they can really hold at risk adversaries that would threaten them in a way that they can never hold them at risk with physical tanks and planes and so forth. That's not unusual, though, in the process of international lawmaking. I don't think that's unique to cyber. It presents different challenges. Um, I don't Viscerally, it's, it's easy to say that if North Korea conducted an act of sabotage that blew up a bunch of computers but didn't cause any other harm, 
that we would automatically go from zero to 60 into a state of war. That's a political. I don't think he's saying that. I understand that, but I'm just saying that these are some of the analogies that I think are, are you know, can be um, distracting from the central questions. Can a cyber operation that doesn't involve traditional level of, of armed forces moving across a border, using military force, dropping bombs? Can you have a level of harm caused through this means that could rise to a level that it would be considered a use of force? Yes, it can. Um, you know, there are some leaders in the world, North Korea being one of, one of them, where the number of times that North Korea has said everything from launching balloons across the border to you name it has been an act of war against them. Um, they're not, those aren't serious assertions. So I, I do think also that there's a bit of a danger if you're in just naming something as an act of war, if you're not prepared to act on it as such, well, that also sends some, some conflicting messages. I just, it, there, there are a lot of means in international law by which you can respond to the, these different malicious cyber activities. Um, it's, it's absolutely calling forth a need to confront that and use those tools, but, but it's not just a binary choice between nothing and considering yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, think, I think we're conflating two different things. One is the characterization of the event. If the event is an armed attack, it's an armed attack. That doesn't drive that, and remember, act of war, and, and I know Gary, I know everybody, but just for everybody else, act of war is not a legal term. You will not find it in you know, international conventions. That's, it's armed attack. So if something amounts to an armed attack, the question as to what to do about it, A, is driven by you know, uh, what the law would permit, but also by politics. It may be that somebody could conduct an armed attack against the United States and we choose not to go to war against them, or we choose to ignore it. But when you say it's vandalism, then you're lowering the level and you're foreclosing that circumstance. You're building a norm that in the future you may not like because you might not consider um, the exfiltration of other kinds of information and the cooking of computers to be vandalism, even though it might look yeah. similar. So, so, uh, I'm sorry. Let me pull on that thread a little bit because I think it's interesting that... that uh, Norm development is really where the interesting conversation is right now because we've sort of given up on uh, states coming together on a, on a consensus about how international law applies to cyber operations in the short term. So in the longer term, we're sort of looking at the development of norms. And remember, uh, norms can come up, uh, about just by state practice. You know, eventually we're going to get law because states will practice and then they'll talk about what they think the law requires and then that will calcify into, into law. Something called customary international law. That's right. So, so with norms, we're just looking at, at state practice, and I think there might be, this is a, sort of controversial, but along the lines of what we were talking about here, I think there might be a norm developing that cyber incidents, although the law would say if it rises to a certain level, you can respond with kinetic force, the norm might be developing that says if it's a cyber incident contained to the cyber arena, you should respond in the cyber uh, realm. And hmm. we're seeing states practice this way because, again, we only have what 
we get re reports of in the media. We don't have states making statements. But if you look at what was reported in the media, uh, Iran suffered Stuxnet and responded uh, with uh, DDoS attacks against the, the financial system in the United States. The U.S. suffered the, the Sony incident and reportedly responded with some cyber uh, uh, aggression in Korea. After the DNC, uh, DNC hack, uh, there was some media reporting that the United States responded in Russian cyber systems. So there might be this sort of practice norm developing, because states develop norms and law, they work toward developing, whether they want to or not, because inaction is also state practice. And if we continue to suffer these things... are much more surreptitious in nature. Oh, that's right. But, if, but even if we don't respond, uh, we're starting to build law. Because, okay. uh, so I think we've reached the point where the audience would agree with the panelists that it's very difficult to make a determination as to exactly what types of cyber activities constitute the equivalent of an armed attack or use of force to which a state might then respond. And we've also seen that cyber is such that even though a state might have suffered a cyber attack, for strategic or political reasons, it may choose not to respond. Now, that's also true in, in terms of kinetic attack to a, to a certain degree. And I think we've also explored the issue of are we moving in the international arena toward the development of international norms that apply to cyber activities and cyber operations? And I think the answer the panelists have given is that we're we're not doing it from a consensus standpoint. We're not meeting internationally and in doing that. But when states make individual decisions with respect to individual cyber attacks on them, and they label them as such, perhaps we're establishing norms through customary practice and state practice. And that's something that I think that we need to be attuned to and that we need to be aware of. And I'm going to close this out, but I'll ask if there are any closing comments on this particular question before I do so. Just one thing very quickly for the students. When you're, tr when you're called upon to make these decisions, is this an act of war? You need to be ready for that moment. And to be ready for that moment, it's more about than just the law. You have to learn a lot about how cyber works. You don't have to be a geek, but you have to have a working knowledge. Secondly, you have to have a working knowledge of what's being affected. What military system? How does that work? What, you know, that kind of thing. So, in other words, the facts matter. You know, one of the things, we have lots of smart lawyers, but if they don't know the business that they're trying to advise on, that's where the breakdown comes. So equip yourself for that moment because that's not the time when you're going to start wanting to, uh, tell me how, uh, what's a DDoS anyway, you know, kind of thing. Anyone else before we hear it? Yeah, a couple of things. One, um, whether it's fully satisfying to everyone or not, the United States has certainly said in national policy documents and otherwise that it absolutely reserves the right to respond to, right under the right circumstances, some, uh, harm caused through cyber uh, as a use of force and to, uh, to respond in self-defense. Um, the use of the term vandalism may have been um, not the, the most appropriate term, but that in the broader context, the, the U.S. was clear as well that it considered that to be unlawful and reserved the right to respond with proportionate measures. So it, 
it didn't simply just qualify it as a non-legal term of vandalism um, and move on. And I think you got to be careful about state practice because, as we know, state practice alone does not create international law. States frequently choose not to exercise use force options in the face of circumstances where they could very well articulate a self-defense rationale. But they make a calculation that that's not the best response at the moment. Um, unless they're saying that they're doing that because of a sense of legal obligation that they, they can't respond otherwise, um, there, there's, you've got to be careful on what you can deduce from that. Anyone else? Okay, let's move on from USAID Bellum and let's transition to law of armed conflict considerations. And the, and the first question I would pose in, in this realm is this. Is it realistically possible to apply currently existing codified and customary law of armed conflict principles to the world of cyber operations? Uh, in other words, is it realistically possible to apply the concepts of military necessity or distinction of discrimination, proportionality, and humanity to these types of operations? And I would remind the, the panelists that, again, the DOD Law of War Manual does, in fact, state that international law and long-standing international norms are applicable to state behavior in cyberspace. So with that as background, I pose this question. How, in fact, does a state calibrate a legitimate act of self-defense against a cyber attack or a use of force deemed for use of force purposes the equivalent of an armed attack, given I would suggest the very often difficult task of first accurately attributing the source of such an attack, and secondly, the law of armed conflict requirements, particularly those of distinction and proportionality, to mitigate any collateral damage associated with a self-defense response. How, would, how do you calibrate a self-defense response using the traditional 20th century concepts of the law of armed conflict when we're in the cyber world of the 21st century. Anybody want to start the discussion on that? Sure. Number one. Oh. Sure. Yeah. Don't mind. Todd, why don't you go ahead? No, I think it's possible. doesn't mean it's easy. Um, but I think your, your question kind of rolls into both the use of force and self-defense in an ad bellum setting as well as kind of the you know, four principles that we typically think of in using force during an ongoing armed conflict. So I'll kind of try to parse those out because I think, you know, the problem you mentioned attribution was certainly huge in this arena. Um, I don't think it is quite as big of a problem if you're using force in self-defense, right? Because if your requirement is that you're using the necessary force to end the threat, to deal with the threat, and it's proportional, you know, we don't need to know exactly who's doing that. If, so if you're, you're comfortable with taking out two or three different computer systems as you hack back to the source of the attack? Is that does, proportionate? Doesn't make, that's what I was going to say. You, know, you have to look at the proportionate, proportionality requirement and see if you can control what you're, you know, the effect you're going to have taking some action back at the systems that are attacking you. But you know, I don't see the attribution problem as great in that arena for those immediate measures in self-defense. To, a, to an ongoing attack. Todd's certainly right in the sense that we're, proportionality in the ad bellum sense is a different calculus than proportionality in the in bellum attack question. 
And as we know, even if you're conducting an attack for defensive reasons under the law of armed conflict, you still have to apply the law of the rules of distinction and proportionality in the execution of that operation. So from an ad bellum perspective, um, the level of response is what must be proportionate to the threat that you are now have the necessity to respond to and, um, and defeat the threat. So there's different questions about the level of attribution you need to be able to respond as a matter of self-defense um, in an ad bellum construct. That to me is again different than, I, I don't like to use the term attribution when talking about in bello law of armed conflict. That's a question of target identification. We work through this in the physical world. Um, you also have to work through it in the, in the non-kinetic and the cyber world. Do you have sufficient information to identify the, the, the system you're about to take an operation against as a, a military objective, as a lawful target under the law of armed conflict? If the operation you're going to conduct, here's what I know Gary will want to chime in, constitutes an attack under the law of armed conflict, which frequently a cyber operation will not reach that level. Yeah, just so everybody understands, proportionality when you're talking about use ad bellum, in other words, a justification for going to war, that kind of proportionality or, or responding in a defensive manner, that has to be proportionate to the harm you suffered or the threat you're undergoing. Proportionality, once you're in the war, only applies to damage to civilians and civilian objects. And the rule is it can't be excessive in relation to the military objective you're trying to achieve. And what further complicates it, and there's some debate about this, is that you do that analysis not based on a particular attack, but on the, mm -hmm. the campaign in general. Uh, and so in the cyber realm, as Gary has a great article out, which I open it, Gary Alpha, um, where he talks about, you know, when you look at the definition of attacks, which proportionality only applies to, or it, a lot of these cyber things aren't attacks, even during war. So you don't have to apply proportionality to them. Uh, and you don't have to apply distinction. Distinction means you only focus it on military objectives. So that's... That's what's, and that's another reason why it's so important to understand these systems if you're going to be giving advice about them. And part of the problem we have in this whole proportionality, and Gary, number one, might correct me on this, is that traditional weapons, you can take them out to the range. You can fire them off. You can see how much they explode. You can measure. With some of these cyber things, you let it loose, and you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. Now, some of them... You know, they're designed in a certain way. But is anybody here old enough to remember Y2K? <laughs> remember <laughs> a few. Uh, I don't think anybody at that table. But, um, but Y2K was, oh, the world's good. All oh, this is going to happen with computers, blah, blah. And nothing happened, which to me illustrates that this is such, we don't have, we don't have enough ranges for cyber weapons to totally understand what effect that they might have once they get in quote the wild which they can as I think uh, Stuxnet 
got let me, allegedly. Let me ask you this. If, if in fact you think you've endured a use of force or a cyber attack to which you feel you should respond, what kind of response is required? Do you have to respond kinetically? Do you have to respond in kind? Do you have a combination of both? I suppose my question is, does international law, the law of armed conflict, mandate one or the other? Yeah. Well, well, this is one of the workarounds that maybe people haven't talked enough about. If, if we're not sure what the law is, the safest way to respond would be with a countermeasure uh, in kind. So, uh, the, so a countermeasure is where you've been the victim of an unlawful act. You are, um, your, your unlawful act in response is rendered lawful because it's done for the purpose of ending the unlawful uh, act against you. It's kind of a confusing uh, we're circle, but something you're doing that would normally be unlawful is rendered lawful because you're doing it in response to an unlawful uh, attack or act against you. So this we to the area of reprisals. The, yeah, gonna, that's right. We're not going to go there. Today. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so uh, a countermeasure is is the safe option when you're not sure whether or not the, this uh, aggressive act against your state would rise to the level uh, of an attack. You can just respond the same way, and then whatever they did, it was illegal to me. I'm responding the same way, but it's legal because I'm getting them to stop what they're doing. So that, that's one way to look uh, at that and avoid the whole question of whether or not something is an attack. But to specifically answer uh, your question, Dave, I, I think you're certainly not limited, as we sort of discussed before, to one realm or the other now, although I do think that there's an argument that there might be a norm developing, uh, although, you know, it's a, it's a radical argument. It's crazy, crazy. So you think, you think there really might actually be a norm developing that if you suffer a cyber event, a norm is developing that you have to respond through another cyber event as opposed to kinetically. You're, you're only talking about use side bellum, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's the, the argument is that there's a, a norm developing, although it's not, a, it's not a popular argument, especially in the U.S. national security uh, community. And anybody, anybody else have thoughts on that? Yeah, surprisingly, I, I would disagree. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, yeah, it's, we haven't seen any states assert that as a matter of any of yours. Um, no, certainly not law. Certainly not law. I think you've seen, you know, states are certainly struggling because this is relatively new. Um, and understanding the impact of this, understanding the effects, understanding the, the breadth and scope of the threat that, that, that cyber operations can present. Um, and they're responding in differing ways. But, um, at, you know, at no point have they said, we believe that this is legally um, something that has to be contained to a cyber-on-cyber -cyber, um, response. Yeah, Dave, I would just say that I, I would say the you know the example uh, general that you gave of the you know, six people in a room being the cyber warfare, you know the Iranians responding and you know the, the way they responded after Stuxnet supposedly, it's more an issue of just what are their capability to respond, right? Other than the United States, a couple of other countries. Most of these countries, if they don't want to suffer some sort of further negative harm, you know, may only be able to respond in a cyber fashion. So it's a matter of capability rather than adhering to some emerging norm. Which may again give emphasis to the, the theme that we have heard that the United States and other developed countries are not eager to develop norms that apply to cyber operations simply to maintain the flexibility that they have with respect to their dominance in the field right now. 
Well, I, I think the counter, I, I, do, I don't disagree with you, Todd, when it's somebody other than the United States, but the counter examples are Sony, Sony and the DNC. Sony and the DNC attacks because the U.S. does have the capability to respond and chose, and chose to respond allegedly uh, through, uh, through cyber means instead of uh, kinetically or through some other means. So I think those are counter examples to that. And, it, and at some point, states, uh, it, it's a bit disingenuous for states to sit back and not not uh, own up to what they're doing, either offensively or defensively, and then claim that, that no, uh, no norms are developing. Because if they're acting, I think by definition norms are, are developing, whether they like them or not. Okay, let me, let me point you in the direction of an area of cyber operations that was unclear and contentious, unlike what we've been talking about, okay? <laughs> the, the DOD Law of War Manual observes and I quote, generally, to the extent that cyber operations resemble traditional peacetime intelligence and counterintelligence activities, suppose we're talking espionage here, such as unauthorized intrusions into computer networks solely to acquire information, such cyber operations will likely be treated similarly under international law. That's a little awkward, I think. I'm a little uncertain as to what the manual actually means. But I think they're saying, in other words, while such operations will most likely be considered illegal under and punishable by domestic law of the states in which they're conducted, they would not be considered unlawful under international law. And so, to me, this statement seems to indicate that the United States takes the view that while certain cyber activities may infringe upon the sovereignty, the sovereignty of a state, they don't rise to the level of a cyber attack. And it's simply cyber intrusions. They're subject only to the domestic law of the state affected. So this statement, I, this statement gives rise to this issue of whether non-cyber attacks, i.e. cyber disruptions, as violations of the state sovereignty, if they are also, in fact, violations of international law. So the first question in relation to this is this one. Is the concept of sovereignty a primary rule, quote unquote, primary rule of international law with the resulting consequence that a cyber intrusion or a violation of a state's sovereignty constitutes a violation <coughs> of not only that affected state's domestic law, but of international law as well? Okay, who wants to take a crack at that? Well, you can have violations of sovereignty that don't amount to uses of forces, the use of force or an armed attack. So um, I, am, I think that arguments can be made that espionage violates the sovereignty. When you send a foreign agent into another country under false pretenses or whatever, you're, you're violating the sovereignty of that nation on some level. That well, said, in the context of an armed conflict, Charlie, if that agent is engaged in espionage, that's not prohibited under international correct, law. Correct, correct. But, 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 and, but here, here's what I would argue about espionage, especially peacetime espionage. And we're starting to see this in the uh, search and seizure cases in the Supreme Court, where there's lots of things that used to be okay, like remember uh, the Riley case that came out recently, where you say, hey, you can search somebody instant to arrest, and now they want to go into a cell phone and, and get all this information. The court's starting to say, well, wait a second, this technology does make some, this different. You may be seeing something like this in the international realm when the capability is so vast, 
where you can hoover up information on every single person and then use big data to craft propaganda or other kinds of attacks. For example, maybe an adversary believes that the best way to disrupt troops in the field is to go after their families by uh, you know, zeroing out all their credit cards or putting the pictures of their children on the web and where they go to school and everything else. There's lots of capabilities that, that big data provides that may make us have to rethink what have been our traditional ways of thinking about some of this. So a dissemination of propaganda could in fact be a violation of the state's sovereignty and therefore a violation of international law as well as domestic I, I, I think we have to think about that. That's not the law where we are right now. If I could, a couple of points. Um, I think compound questions to some degree. The, the, the law of war manual provision that you're referring to first of all, doesn't compel um, a, an answer to the question of what the role of sovereignty is in international law because what the, the Law of War Manual is basically saying that the prevailing view is that espionage in and of itself is not prohibited by international law. It doesn't constitute a breach of an international obligation incurring state responsibility for the state executing that. That doesn't mean that while you're executing that operation, you might not be subject to the domestic jurisdiction of the state against which you're committing espionage. This was the question of indictments of the PLA members who were indicted for exactly this reason. They were conducting economic espionage against the United States. We've, we've asserted our domestic law jurisdiction over them if they ever happen to step outside of China and we can put the habeas gravis on them. But right there are indictments pending. So, with respect to the question of sovereignty, yes, there's a debate I've, I've written out there on this as to whether sovereignty is itself a primary rule of international law that can be breached, or if it's a principle that underlies some of the primary rules we've been talking about, like the prohibition on the use of force. Um, even for those who accept, who, who assert that it's a primary rule, they say that espionage is a long-standing carve-out to that rule. So the Law of War Manual is essentially saying if you're conducting espionage through cyber means, just as if you were conducting it through non-cyber means, the legal framework that would apply would be international law doesn't regulate that, but you must note and be cautious of the fact that you could be subject to the criminal jurisdiction of that state. Every time we a, a country sends agents inside the territory of another state to conduct spying, if that individual is caught, that, that individual can be prosecuted by that state. That's not an international law question. Okay, I, I understand that, Gary. Let's take, let's take cyber intrusions out of the realm of espionage, then. Other types of cyber intrusions that would be viewed as violations of a state's sovereignty, not, not espionage, but simply other cyber intrusions that affect the ability of the state in some way or the other. Does that change the paradigm at that point? Most of, I think most of those incidents probably cross the, uh, violate the non-interference doctrine, which is another specific instance of a violation of sovereignty. I, I, I personally, I think that the question of whether sovereignty is like a, is a principle, a standalone principle without something attached to it is kind of an academic 
point and not really all that useful in practice because everything that we care about from my perspective is attached somehow to a, a use of force or a violation of the non-interference doctrine or at least a mm -hmm. physical penetration of space. Uh, the remaining things would be, uh, for example, in cyber, what we talk about is we, we've, we've put an implant on a network system inside another state. And let's say it's not for espionage, so it's for something else, but it's not actually physically doing anything yet, and it's not anything directly related to national security or else it might violate the, the non-interference doctrine. So it's kind of an irrelevant implant uh, on a system in another state. Does that violate their sovereignty? Well, it might, but who cares? because it doesn't really have any effect on anything. When it has the effect, now we're going to analyze the effect. So the implant itself, you know, espionage is, is carved out. Anything else? Why would you even do it? I, Gary, I can't believe you, you just laid claim to the fact that academics have engaged in esoteric <laughs> discussion. My gosh. I, I, I do think, though, that if we find, I, I think this is a very interesting question. If we found something in one of our computer systems, that said, really did control a nuclear plant that wasn't activated. It was just sitting there. But we knew, for what, however reason, who put it there. How would we react to that? And they were, they were just putting it there in case of war or whatever. How would we react to that? I think it, I think it could be very tricky because it'd be like as if we found a bomb, a gigantic bomb underneath this building that the, we knew definitively the North Koreans put it there. Are we just going to say, well, it's just a matter of you know, infringement on sovereignty? I think it could go beyond that. But I do agree with you that this sovereignty discussion is, is you know, faculty lounge stuff in, in many. I can promise you that's not the case. Yeah. It's significant. It's a question of, for any state that adheres to the rule of law, and you're considering your options to respond to threats or to no, achieve national, let me finish, national objectives, um, whether or not what you're doing would cross a threshold of uh, breach of international law matters. Yeah, well, I, I should, you, good catch. What I meant to say was whether or not international law is a principle versus whether or not it's a founding. Yeah, I think that's the academic part of it. That's the academic part of it, because at the end of the day, you kind of get to the same place, I, I think. Yeah, I would just add that I think the just the nature of the internet makes this a difficult question, right? Because as Gary said, Gary A here, uh, said that um, you know what we're concerned about is the effect. That may be true, but how we achieve the effect and the pathway by which we actually get to that effect may affect the systems, may pass through the systems and uh, equipment, perhaps of allied countries, who would care very much about whether we're taking some sort of act that may have a negative effect elsewhere, but using their systems to do that. Well, and noting, staying on the this topic and, and noting that, we, again, we have we only have to deal with the facts that are put in the media, so because, we don't, because states aren't talking about what they're doing. Twenty years ago, if you'd asked me if a state had put a, a, a was going to put a cyber implant into some of our critical infrastructure, like our power grid, or some of our other very very significant, uh, you know, essential systems for national survival, I would have said I would, probably we would have considered that an act of war, um, and we would have taken some kind of serious uh, action against it. But you can read in the paper all the time now that we find foreign implants in our power grid daily. And what have we done? 
in response. And doesn't that then get back to the kind of how we started the discussion and ad bellum issues with what is imminence, right? And if we have that implant, we've uncovered the implant, how do we determine the imminence of the threat, if any, and when we would be justified in taking some well, let me Let me pose this question in, in conjunction with what we just discussed. Are there standards for the attributed proof required for holding a state responsible for these types of intrusions? The standard is I, what a reasonable state under the circumstances would do. And I would add that I think, you know, this is not a, while perhaps compounded in the cyber realm, not a problem that's unique. If you look at the ICJ opinions in the Corporate Channel case, Nicaragua, the oil platforms case, the court had a very hard time in finding basically state responsibility and attributing the acts of certain of the parties. And that's in a physical realm. Well, and Russia's taking this to another level, right, Todd? I mean, with uh, the, the so-called little green men that crossed the border into uh, Ukraine a couple of years ago, and, you know, it's military guys who stripped off their name tapes and uh, walked into Ukraine. Uh, on vacation. On vacation, of course. On vacation, yes. Um, and and uh, Russia d disclaimed responsibility for that, as well as the cyber actors uh, who, who were active uh, that are, have been attributed by other parties to Russia in uh, the ones who acted in Estonia or in the South Ossetia invasion and in Ukraine as well the, 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 on the cyber side. So uh, that attribution is a, is a difficult thing and there really isn't, the standard of proof I concur is what a reasonable state would do, although that's not a, maybe a very useful standard in this case. Let me, that's all we have. A point about um, how all of this tends to work. Um, it's not typically that you're going to find that implant in your own system, although you very well might. But one thing that cyber enables, very different than the kinetic world, is the adversary is virtually dispersed globally. So you don't typically just conduct an operation from your desktop to the, to the adversary desktop that you want to affect. You've set up a series of co-opted nodes, boxes, computers out there in a very sophisticated command and control structure so that your activity is wending its way through, through a number of states. So when you're confronted with an ongoing attack in a DDoS scenario or, or a threat of an attack that you can see maybe um, pending, and the means by which you would need to, to thwart that through a counter cyber operation means you'd have to go into those systems in those various countries. This is not an academic question. This is a very, very challenging question. And so how does that third party state interpret what action you're going to take? Does international law compel you to seek the consent or, or assistance of that state to, to address a threat that could be um, a matter of seconds, if not minutes, in, in the need to respond to it. These are issues where the thresholds of international law and what international law says is regulated or not regulated is significant. Well, this is where countermeasures comes in handy, right? I mean, because you're suffering, it's coming from a node, whether or not the state controls the node, it's coming from a node and you're engaging your countermeasure against the node. The problem with that is, depending on your view of countermeasures, the baseline rule of countermeasures is it's only available against states 
and only against the state that is in violation of international law itself. And so there's a house of cards. There's a house of cards question here because there's debate in international law whether or not states, as a matter of due diligence, have a responsibility to not allow cyber infrastructure on their territory to be used in this way. And that's hardly an accepted rule. And so you have a hard time articulating that the state in whose territory these nodes reside are, in fact, doing anything wrong vis-a-vis you. You're talking about the unwilling or unable concept here. That doesn't even actually come into play. For countermeasures, right, you have to establish that the state in whose territory you're going to take and create an effect through cyber is in breach of international law. But it's not their operation. It's not their infrastructure. It's being done from outside of their territory using computers that have been hacked into and co-opted in their territory. Yeah, I mean, so the response is they're violating your sovereignty by letting their territory be used. And second is, although it's not a consensus, it's not a consensus, there's an argument in the international legal community that countermeasures are available against non-state groups as well, although it's not established yet. Well, let me, drawing upon everything that you just said in conjunction with this last question, let me pose one last question to you, and then we'll open it up for Q&A. And I think to a certain extent you've already touched upon this. What measures might a state subject to such a cyber intrusion, the type of intrusion that we've been talking about, take in response? And are there really any rules with respect to how that response should be regulated? And I think to a certain extent you've already touched upon it, but you might want to expand on that. Well, I think it was pretty well covered in terms of countermeasures and what the developing international law is. And, you know, this touches on, you know, the proverbial act of defense and hack back and so forth by private actors, which generally is not looked upon favorably by international law. So I think that the challenge here is finding effective countermeasures because they have to be below the level of use of force. And so a lot of times sanctions are what people go to. Some people will tell you that the indictments of the Chinese were countermeasures, and I think that they were. Retorsions, which are not unlawful. Do countermeasures have to be cyber in nature? No. Countermeasures are presumably unlawful acts as opposed to retorsions. Right. So, for example, theoretically, to answer your question, could you, states have a right of innocent or transit passage through your territorial waters or through certain international straits. And if you control that strait, could you, if you were to deny a state its movement through that, that would be an unlawful act. If you're not using force, it doesn't constitute a use of force or an act of war. But as a countermeasure, you could block a state's ability to transit, which could have, you know, cause harmful effects on their economy. And so you're doing this. You have to provide them notice beforehand as to why you're doing a countermeasure. You're taking this countermeasure to bring them back into compliance 
with their legal, international legal obligations. So there's, it doesn't have to be cyber response. Okay, well I'm glad we've cleared up the nothing, capability nothing. of applying 20th century international law to 21st century cyber capabilities. I have two mics up here. If I can have two volunteers to take questions and run the mics, I would appreciate it. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. I think we have students. So. <laughs> we, want, we wanted the pro. That's why God made students. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's open it up to who the heck has questions for our panelists. I want to direct a question to um, Colonel Corn. I thought your last comment was fascinating. What, but before I do, it seems to me that it's so clear. It's a very complex issue, and we're no longer playing checkers. We're all into Rubik's Cube exponentially. <laughs> oh, I have to like Rubik's Cube, but I'm not sure about this. Colonel Corn made the comment that there may be bystanders who become innocently involved in the um, attack of a cyber nature. My question is, what's the responsibility of a state and the thinking ahead, the consequences? when anyone begins to think about a cyber attack, because it seems to me, with the kind of interrelationships that cyber represents, that there's always going to be that innocent bystander, that, that pass-through territory, and in fact, potentially to involve almost everyone on the globe. It's such an interconnected world with our cyber and internet systems. Good question. No, you're absolutely right, um, and that is, factored in to any potential operation you might conduct, both from the ad bellum perspective. So those people are the citizens of a particular state. They reside within the territory of another state in most instances, right? So now you're having to figure out what are we contemplating doing to address this threat coming from uh, a hacked into computer in you know, state X. Well, from an ad bellum perspective, are we going to do something that itself would cause the level of damage that would constitute a use of force? If so, that's likely going to also be the triggering event for application of the law of armed conflict. And so you'd have to apply the standard laws of distinction and proportionality um, and protection of the civilians and civilian objects. Right, so you have to think all the way through these. If you're taking an action, um, and not, not every action you're going to take in cyberspace is, is a catastrophic thing. Um, the, the ability to take very discreet um, actions is, exists. And so you know, you'll factor that in. Is this something, again, that is, is it crossing the non-intervention threshold, which is lower than a use of force? If not, is it below that? That, that implicates this whole sovereignty question. Um, but you, you might very well be able to take actions that, frankly, the owner of that computer might never even know. And in, in, in some degree, you've cleaned malware off of their computer <laughs> without their knowledge. But yes, you have to factor all this in and consider those second and third order consequences of any action you're going to take. I, so here, here's a, can I? Mm -hmm. So here's a funny one, it's very similar, Gary just reminded me as he was talking through this stuff, that uh, a couple of years ago there were some guys in uh, Europe, it might have been in Turkey, somewhere in Europe, that found that one of the routers that was very commonly used over there um, 
had a, had a flaw in its firmware that allowed people to hack into it and take control of the router, which was used in a lot of people's homes. And, and there was a patch available for that, but just like all of you, not everybody was very diligent in reaching out to the manufacturer and downloading the patch for their routers. Um, so these routers remained vulnerable. So this uh, couple of hackers in Europe d designed uh, a way to hack into these routers for the sole purpose of patching them so they couldn't be hacked into again. Was that wrong? Those things are weird. I mean, when you get on there and fix somebody's thing. But uh, So uh, I'll t say two other things, too. In LOAC, maybe all states failed the principle of this. In the, sorry, in the law of armed conflict, maybe all states failed the principle of distinction from the very beginning because we inextricably intertwined our national security systems with this commercial system uh, that the Internet became. And so we made the Internet a target. Even though civilians use it widely, it's so much a part of our national security and military systems that it is, by definition, a target. The, the second thing I'll say, when you look at the uh, more broadly at the ad bellum system, maybe someday a norm could develop where we would say, you know what, it's the, forget the state's involvement, it's the, it's the responsibility of the owner of the computer to make sure that the computer or the network is patched and sufficiently protected so it's not used for nefarious purposes. And if you fail in your duty, uh, states and others reserve the right to take it out or at least fix it so it's not doing bad things to them, right? I mean, we should all have security. We shouldn't leave our systems on. We shouldn't go to gambling sites and surf places where malware gets downloaded on our computer. If we do, bad on us. And I, let's, let's remind everyone of the concepts of military necessity and proportionality or distinction and discrimination because that's what we're talking about here. Military necessity says that the expected collateral damage cannot be excessive with respect to the military advantage expected to be gained, okay? And distinction and discrimination says you have to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants and between protected places and protected property. Between military objectives and protected places and protected property. So what you're actually introducing into the conversation here is weighing those, the military necessity and distinction and discrimination and the proportional nature the balancing fulcrum of proportionality. Okay, so just want to end, want to refresh your memories with respect to those before we move on. But the idea of dual, uh, yeah, Charles, I just got idea of dual use facilities mm -hmm. is not particularly new. Mm -hmm. You might remember that the whole interstate road system is actually a national was a national defense initiative. It wasn't built for commerce or any, it has that effect was be able to move troops around the United States. And so bridges, uh, roads, electrical systems, they all have this dual use, and it's not particularly new. It's more complicated, I think, with cyber, but the concept itself isn't new. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Uh, thank you for coming today. I have a question. You know, in the news a year or so ago, there was information about uh, companies like Apple possessing uh, detailed programming that the government wanted to open up files on people. I'm not using the right terminology. But you're mentioning states. What about private companies that have tremendous power, that have tremendous uh, ability and the means, the financial means, to develop programs that are not really touched by states or, you know, specific international law or whatever. How do you 
because that's a, that's a quiet partner in all of this that factors into all of this discussion today. It seems to me. So we're not just dealing with governments and you know, foreign governments or foreign states or or our United States. We're also dealing with. You're, you're certainly true about that. That, that introduces the entire conversation of the relationship between the corporate world, businesses, and the government, and the responsibilities on, on both sides. So anybody want to tackle that question? Well, I, I just think you have a very good point, that the, the corporations do have a lot of power. In the Apple FBI case, Apple, for commercial reasons, did not want to have an unbreakable system because that made it more saleable. Turns out it wasn't unbreakable because the FBI went out and found a contractor that broke it. Uh, now, there are still thousands of phones that they can't get into. And my view of this is, and I'm almost alone on this, is that this is a social justice issue. Because if you're an Apple and you're an executive, uh, you have all kinds of personal guards, you're living in a gated community. But the rest of us are dependent upon law enforcement to protect us from all kinds of criminals who are using these encrypted phones to do their... So I think that's, that's something that needs to be talked about. Corporations are subject to international law and, and domestic law in ways that, that you know, we aren't. But there's this assumption, for example, when... It's called the 215 program. When the NSA was collecting all these phone calls, uh, and it's a, I we shouldn't go down this rabbit hole, but to make a long story short, you will now companies are collecting all that phone call, all that information. If you have a Gmail account in that long thing that you agreed to, <laughs> it says we can e read your emails anytime you want, any anytime we want, and they do. For example, if, if I tell Todd, let's have lunch in D.C., I'm going to start getting emails on restaurants because they have a computer. It's not so much human beings that are looking for keywords and structures, and they, they monetize it. So you can go out and buy an awful lot of information where a company could build a very accurate picture of you based on this information. And we're only starting to wrap our arms around what this means for the future. It's surprising to me, and I'd be interested to hear what students here think, but a lot of the, my students aren't as concerned about things like privacy and so forth that maybe people, when I was growing up, because in their world they've been putting things on Facebook for 10 years, not all of which they're especially proud of today. And um, Snapchat. And Snapchat, yeah, it's gonna disappear. Yeah, sure it's gonna disappear. Um, so so we're, we're just starting to wrap, and this is in the hands of private industry in ways that we haven't seen in the future. And so how much do we want to regulate them? They whine and cry that they're being disadvantaged on the international, uh, in international markets because there are people who will sell encrypted equipment. But, you know, I think this is a this is it's another panel discussion, but yeah, it's, it's another important. panel discussion. But in the USAID Bellum Musin Bellow world that we're talking about today, it does raise the issue of the relationship between the private sector and the government sector. 
and the contentious issue of how much cooperation there should be and who's responsible for what. Anybody want to just yeah. touch upon that? It, there's, there's two big aspects to the question. Exactly right. Roles and responsibilities between the, the private sector and the federal government. Um, on the one hand, you hear certain sectors, uh, certain elements of the private sector asking for or crying for the ability to quote unquote hack back. Um, that, that there's not enough of a protective umbrella, they ought to be able to take matters into their own hands and, and hack back against threats that are coming against them. When you start peeling that back, it's typically not a very sophisticated um, discussion and analysis about what that means. Uh, it, they, they, even, even people who work in the industry don't seem to get to the issues of, well, you don't know who you're hacking back against necessarily. Um, as I said, you're not going to get to the the individual who's causing this. You're going to be layers in between there. Um, more importantly, as we've had this discussion, it's very hard to understand how states will categorize something that happens to systems in their own territory, right? Will they qualify it as a use of force, characterize it as a use of force or something else? And, and you know, putting in the private sector the decision-making that could essentially escalate something into um, a much bigger national security problem isn't really the right answer. On the other side of that coin is the, am the amount of information sharing and cooperation back and forth with the private sector. And there are a number of cross-cutting um, interests that make that a very difficult discussion. Um, on the government side, there's the desire to share, but you run into the issue of classified information. A lot of the knowledge the government has comes from sources and methods that they can't really put at risk. It makes it hard to share all the information with the private sector. The private sector, on the other hand, also doesn't necessarily want to share with the federal government because of market brand questions, because um, their general counsels will often be very cautious about that because, well, now you're potentially implicating government regulators coming in and you know liability for your corporation and a whole host of issues. Um, it, it's getting better, but there's this sort of maneuvering around with the government and the private sector to figure out what's the right mix and balance there to get a better security posture overall for the, for the country. Yeah, I, I went to a conference once about law firms that are hacked. And they had an FBI agent there said, yes, we will come in, we will help you, we're there. And I said, well, do you get the client's permission? Because guess what? Some of the clients would not want an FBI agent rooting around in the law firm's files. He says, oh, no, we're not there for that purpose. We're only there to help. And so somebody said, well, what happens when you find child porn on the computer? Are you just going to ignore that? He goes, well, no. And then you can you go down that rabbit hole of a million things. So this is a very difficult, especially for those in the legal profession who are, and guess what? The hackers, including adversaries, they are going after the law firms. Why? Because they see them as the weak link. It might be hard now, these days, to get into a big defense contractor. But they're law because they have very sophisticated defenses. But they they are always looking at the for the weak link, and sometimes the weak link is the law firm because it's it doesn't necessarily have what Boeing has to defend itself. Uh, and so I think that's a whole nother layer of this 
complexity. And, and this, this lack of uncertainty with respect to responsibility between the private sector and the government sector means that right now the private sector is vulnerable in many different areas. Until we sort this out and, and make a determination as who, who has responsibility for what in the cyber world, that vulnerability is going to continue to remain with us. We're out of time. Okay, uh, I want to thank you once again for attending. I think this has been a great discussion. So my, fin my final task today is simply to ask you to join me in thanking the panel members. Okay.